is now portrayed in the hit series Manhunt Unabomber. Criminal profiler James Fitzgerald helped crack the case that led to the arrest and conviction of Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. So happy to have you here with us again at the show. And we are so excited about the guests coming up here in the new year. A bunch of incredible people from some of the most talked about movies and award season leading up to the Oscars in March, of course, from the best TV shows. And this week's guest is quite an honor. One of the past season's most talked about shows is definitely Discovery's Manhunt Unabomber. The series, now airing on Netflix, stars Paul Bettany as Ted Kaczynski and Sam Worthington as my guest, FBI profiler James Fitzgerald, better known as Fitz. It's iconic. The most famous police sketch in history is the Unabomber. Terrorist called Unabomber is planning to blow up an airliner sometime during the next six days. He's targeting airlines, scientists, computers, forestry people. We have done every kind of victimology. His victims are totally random. That profile is wrong. He's been outsmarting us the whole time. Everybody's wrong except for you. I know him like I know myself. We need a guilty plea from Ted. This is our only shot. Between the years of 1978 and 1996, 16 bombings occurred, killing three people and injuring many more. The bombs were homemade explosives, frequently sent through the U.S. mail. The bomber turned out to be a reclusive Harvard-educated math prodigy named Ted Kaczynski. Kaczynski lived a reclusive life in a tiny shack with no running water or electricity in western Montana. In the later years, the Unabomber began sending letters about his crimes to the media. In 1995, he sent a 35,000-word manifesto to the New York Times and the Washington Post, in which he laid out why he believed technology was evil and how society was coming undone. FBI criminal profiler James Fitzgerald began working on the Unabomber case in 1995, and it was the Unabomber's writing and the profiling of the linguistics that in huge part cracked the case that led to Ted Kaczynski's arrest. I'm honored to talk about how they broke the case and more with former FBI agent and profiler James Fitz Fitzgerald. Mr. Fitzgerald spent 20 years at the FBI as a supervisory special agent, and before then, 11 years as a police officer. During his career, he's investigated all matter of cases, including high-profile cases like the Unabomber, Joan Benet Ramsey, Anthrax, and the DC Sniper cases as a profiler and or a forensic linguist. Mr. Fitzgerald is the author of the memoir series, A Journey to the Center of the Mind. It chronicles his experiences as a profiler at the FBI. He works as a technical advisor on several TV shows, including Criminal Minds. He is a consulting producer on the scripted miniseries Manhunt Unabomber, where Sam Worthington portrays him and his role in the investigation. Mr. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Christina. Congratulations to the success of the new series. And um, 
You came aboard the investigation, the Unabomberings investigation, sort of many years into it. Can you talk to us about where was the investigation at that point and why were you called in? The investigation started in 1978 uh, with the first several bombings through the early 80s. And there wasn't even a name for the investigation. Disparate law enforcement agencies in the Midwest were working them. Uh, at one point, it became the junkyard bomber because the the, uh, the the bombing devices were made of clearly made of spare parts and and parts that you would you would find in a junkyard somewhere. Finally, after an airline was almost brought down and and some other bombings, uh, the FBI got involved and sort of took over. And that's when the famous uh, acronym Unibomb was first created by an unknown uh, bureau autocrat at this point. And just because people have forgot after all these years, uh, Unibomb does not mean one bomb or mm -hmm. one bomber. It's, it's an acronym for University Airline Bombings because the first uh, six to eight bombings strictly were of universities, airlines, airline-related uh, industries, until eventually, closer to the mid-80s, the Unabomber started spreading out and hitting uh, computer stores. Anyway, all that being said, um, flash ahead to 1995, after several years of the Unabomber writing to the New York Times and other uh, media outlets, the, the Bureau decided to start their own task force, and they, they started it in San Francisco mm -hmm. because uh, that's where the most recent bombings were either occurring were being mailed from and all the documents, the manifesto were being mailed from there. So bottom line is a lot of things started happening in late 94. We had another killing in uh, November of 94 in Northern New Jersey. We had yet another bombing a death in Sacramento, California in uh, April of 95. And they said they want to get some profiling help. I actually wasn't the first profiler involved in the case. Um, the famous John Douglas, who now has the TV series uh, Mindhunter right. and a few books, he was one of the first person who did some of the written profiles on it. They actually brought some other profiler out in the spring of 95. Uh, we'll leave him unnamed. It didn't really work out too well. Okay. Uh, there wasn't a chemistry there. And then in uh, late June, early July of 95, they brought me out, sort of uh, interviewed me. Now, I'm in the FBI already. I'm a brand new Quantico trained profiler after seven years in New York City. And they still wanted to make sure they had the right person working for them at the UTF, again, Unibom Task Force. And uh, I went out there with my supervisor. And sure enough, they brought me back uh, initially for 30 days. But when I started putting some things together and helping them further their case, it wound up I was there for a year and a half and the case was solved under my watch. So uh, that's a nutshell of the case and my early experience in it. When did you sort of start looking at the wording in his letters and the linguistic part in this case? Was it right from the beginning? It pretty much was, Christina. I, um, I, I, was, uh, I had some uh, briefings back in Quantico uh, by one of the profilers who had done some work on the case, and we went over some of the facts, the dates, whatever. Here's a copy of the manifesto. And they had set up for me to meet with a linguist who had just retired from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. This guy was in his mid-60s. He had a very, uh, uh, very good reputation in the area of linguistics and sort of the burgeoning field of forensic linguistics. And mm -hmm. I'm not even sure we even used that term when we first talked, but I went to his home. 
in early July of 95 for, uh, for just a two-hour discussion because he had been given an advanced copy of the manifesto. That's the 56-page, uh, 35,000-word uh, treatise that the Unabomber wrote, and, who, and, and he wanted it published by the New York Times or the Washington Post. And if so, he would agree to stop bombing. Mm -hmm. So I talked to this, his name is Professor Roger Shai, retired from Georgetown. And he's the first linguist I ever met, probably the first discussion I ever had in my life about uh, the science of language linguistics. And I was quite um, uh, encouraged by what I learned from him and what he imparted to me about some of the language features in this manifesto and how he could actually say, the individual who wrote this most likely was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, because there are references to older newspapers uh, and some of the language from those newspapers in the manifesto. So he is putting uh, from a linguistic perspective, this professor was saying, we think, uh, I think, meaning him, the author was born and raised in Chicago. And because the profilers in the case separately said his uh, comfort zone, his area of familiarity, again, meaning the Unabomber, mm -hmm. was Chicago because the first four bombs were either set there or mailed from there. Uh, now we have two different sort of sciences independently saying our, our offender, at least his roots are in Chicago. I mean, I know where he is right now, but there is roots. And I said, you know what? This linguistic stuff may be <laughs> worth something. So actually on the flight out, uh, it was a six-hour flight from D.C. to San Francisco, and I spent uh, about three quarters of that reading the various documents uh, associated with the Unabomb case, really getting into them. And, uh, and I, 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 that's what turned me on to when I first met the bosses out there. I said, yeah, I'm a profiler. Yeah, between my police officer years and seven years in New York, I'm a seasoned investigator. But I'll tell you what, guys, I think if you give me some leeway here to run with the language in these newly received documents... I think we can take this case to the next level. And uh, <clears throat> turns out I was right. And what was one of the first things you found in terms of how, how he wrote? Well, um, yeah, the manifesto was brand new to everybody. The New York Times only received it in late uh, June of 95. Uh, we, they, of course, gave us the original. They kept their own copy, uh, the original for you know latent fingerprint and other laboratory uh, purposes. Um, so I was reading that, uh, but also on the way out, almost by accident, I was putting all my paperwork away on the flight, and I just let this uh, one document, it's a 1985 letter that the Unabomber wrote to uh, Dr. McConnell. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm just looking at it more like a photograph at some point than I am taking in the words. And I happened to look down the left-hand column of this second letter, and uh, this letter is 10 years old now, just to remind you. Mm -hmm. And... What do I see? But I see what I determined to be a hidden code. And um, if you look down the left hand, starting up in the address, if you look down the left hand side of that letter, one page letter, it spells out, Dad, it is I. Mm -hmm. Okay. Coincidence? <laughs> uh, planned? This guy is so clever. He's never been caught with any type of forensic evidence at all. He's still unidentified. Mm -hmm. Is this some kind of a clue, if not even to investigators, because he doesn't like his father, he has daddy issues of some sort? So I nonchalantly arrive in San Francisco. It's my first time ever there. Um, uh, and so I'm meeting all these different people. And almost at the end of the day, I say, hey, boss, the, big, the special agent in charge who was running the task force, have you guys seen this second letter, dad, it is I? 
And after all these years, 10 years, with all the lab examination and everything else, nobody saw that. And they said, Fitz, my nickname Fitz, of course, when did you first come up with this? I said, uh, on the flight out here yesterday. No one's ever seen this before. Come here. Let's call the Department of Justice in D.C. And they put me on like with the second in charge mm -hmm. of the DOJ under Janet Reno at the time. And I'm even saying to the boss, like almost in whisper tones, I'm not exactly sure what this <laughs> means. I'm just saying it may have some value. And I don't care if it's this is something nobody ever saw before. You're in charge of all the document analysis in this case from now on. Start reading the manifesto. Uh, okay. The series, I mean, you really immersed yourself in this, of course, and the series portrays this kind of taking an, uh, um, um, what should I say, a, a mental toll on you and your family. And um, is this accurately portrayed, the way you immersed yourself in this? Yes, and, and immersed is a good word. I, I also use laser focused. Uh, that would describe me best than, uh, I don't like to use the word obsessed or... Uh, or similar words to that, they more have psychological connotations to them. So um, I was away from my family, um, and it was very difficult. Three sons at home, two in their early teens, and, and one, uh, my newest son, who was barely two years old. And uh, and it was difficult at the time. And um, uh, But I became so focused on this case that the, the series probably ex exaggerated in a bit of hyperbole uh, in terms of how they explain some of those scenes. And for the record, real quick here, I never left my two older sons in the movie theater after I got a page to go check out a new document. That never happened. That's dramatic license. Uh, okay. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. But I guess, I guess in the bigger picture, what I'm asking is in, in general, being a profiler in general, in many cases, is, is it something you have to do to really immerse yourself in, in the, in the person, in the criminal, in the, in the investigation, in, that it can come to some difficult levels. I mean, I'm not saying with your family, I'm saying with yourself, sort of, to understand the person that you're profiling. Yeah, it, it, it can happen, although I long, I learned, excuse me, I learned a long time ago um, as a young police officer, detective, detective sergeant, um, you, you have to build a wall in your brain. You have to somehow delineate one side of your brain from the other or compartmentalize. And when you actually leave the door of the police station, the patrol car, uh, whatever it is, the FBI office, the task force facility, and, and you walk in your door, uh, it's okay to think about some things and run something. Oh, when I get in tomorrow, maybe I want to do that. But you really got to just kind of lay back and, uh, and, and reconsider the rest of your life. So even though I was living on my own in San Francisco, uh, in a condo within walking distance of the FBI building. Um, you know, I did make sure I called my home just about every night and talked to, um, you know, my then wife and my kids and, uh, at least the two older boys and let them know that dad is still in their life. And, uh, right, right. and, uh, you know, I wasn't forgetting them and I even couldn't give them too much in the way of details about what I was doing. They knew about this Unabom case and that's what I was assigned to, but, you know, teenage kids and, and uh, their mother were not all that concerned with the details. So, uh, right. but I flied along and uh, kept doing what I did. And, you know, they were doing what they did, although it did make things difficult for both of us. Right. right. Um, I have a sort of specific question about um, Mr. Kaczynski, the, the, the Murray experiments that you see um, in the series and that he apparently went through at the university. 
he has said that that really affected him um, to become what he became. I don't remember Kaczynski saying that in uh, any of his writings that I've read. I, I guess it's the series that sort of alludes. The series, to, yes. right, right, right. Yeah, I want to make sure we we, yes, we separate the series mm-hmm. from and, and the series was great. And I'm telling people who ask, it's about eighty five percent accurate. Um, and uh, and for Hollywood, that's not too bad of a percentile. Uh, they have to add <laughs> a bit dramatic elements into it to move the story along and I guess make the characters a little bit more interesting. But, um, uh, you know, I-, I never heard of that experiment until Kaczynski was arrested and we were preparing for trial and that um, the defense brought it up for the first time. And they were going to use that as at least part of their strategy to mitigate um, uh, the possible death sentence for Kaczynski. As as you know, there is a a, a death sentence in federal uh, uh, criminal cases in the U.S., and and individual states have them too. So that was one of the things on the table. And I think after all the evidence was permitted to be used that was found um, found in the cabin due in part to my search warrant affidavit, um, they tried to get you know that thrown out, but it didn't work. They realized their best defense would have to be something about the distant past of Ted Kaczynski. So for the first time now, I'm hearing about this series of Murray experiments when Kaczynski was at Harvard in the uh, early 1960s. And um, I think the FBI, it wasn't me, I think we did some research on that and, and looked into it somewhat, but I believe a lot of the records were destroyed and we don't know exactly what happened with Kaczynski or his fellow um, uh, you know, experimental samples during that time frame. But I can tell you this, there's been no known case anywhere in the U.S. or even beyond of anybody who became a serial killer, uh, serial offender of any sort, who then laid claim to um, the Har- those Harvard experiments as some kind of a defense. Kaczynski is the only one that even broached that subject I don't think they even took it all that far once all finally came to pass. Right, right. There, right now, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if you've been watching Errol Morris, Wormwood, and there's all kinds of, you know, Stanford experiments, Milford. If my boys, I also have two two boys, if they would ever go into any experiments in college, I would like, please don't do that. <laughs> I mean, there's some scary things you see in popular culture about those type of... Um, well, with, 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 with two master's degrees, and I have a, lots of good friends in academia, I'm very familiar now with the, uh, the Institutional Review Board IRB process that everybody has to go through. I don't think those kinds of experiments... Uh, could could ever happen again, not certainly officially or legally in any institution or any university. So, uh, but yeah, they were those kind of things were running amok back then, uh, uh, than the ones you referenced uh, over the years, and uh, uh, they weren't very good for science or uh, or certainly the people who participated in them. Right, right. Um, I'm interested uh, if you can answer this question. You spent a long time immersing yourself in in, in Ted Kaczynski and trying to f- in trying to figure out who the Unabomber was. And you made a profile. Um, you were you were um, imperative in in getting this profile right that was that brought him down, so to speak. But afterwards, when you when you f- when you found him, you arrested him, and he went to trial. How would you profile Ted Kaczynski now? Yeah, and just so we're clear, it, 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 he, it, there never was a trial. He pleaded guilty before the trial, but of course we were preparing for the trial, so I understand what your, your question is here. Yeah, um, 
I actually hooked up with another agent on uh, the Unabom Task Force. Um, this would have been now my third separate stay uh, in San Francisco, uh, long-term stay. And this was all before the trial. And um, and we actually decided to focus for a while on the women in Kaczynski's life. And we realized he's had very um, uh, unusual relationships over the years, starting with his mother and uh, and moving on to some one ads that he published in various, in at least two different newspapers in which he was looking for women to move with him and live with him in the woods. Uh, when we arrested him inside his cabin, there were a thousand different separately written documents, handwritten or typed by Kaczynski. I read every single one of them. One was his autobiography. One was his journal. Others were his notes. And he had all these separate and distinct um, um, tablets and loose leaf uh, folders and binders containing these various uh, writings um, that he were never meant to be seen by anyone else. But it's how he occupied his time in a 12 by 10 foot cabin with no uh, electricity, right, right. no uh, no running water. Uh, so he had to do something. So when he wasn't hunting for food. Uh, or, or roaming the woods, he would in fact write these things. And uh, he was very frustrated in his life that he never met uh, a woman with whom he could be have any sort of a compatible relationship. Uh, when he worked for his brother's company uh, in the late 70s in Chicago, his brother, his younger brother, was his boss. And here, here's Ted Kaczynski with a PhD. He was a Berkeley mathematics professor, uh, but he quit all that, moved to a cabin. After five, six years, he decided he needed to go back to the big city. That's when the first bombing started. But in the meantime, he's working for his brother, and uh, and there's a woman there uh, working in the company with him, and uh, and they kind of go out. He, he finally builds the courage up to ask her out for something. They go to her house, bake some kind of a pie, and and like he asks her out the next day. He's ah no, Ted, last night was nice, but let's just leave it at that. He went berserk. And the next morning they come in the office and the TV series showed this. And there's these post-it notes all over the place, like 200 of them making fun of her physical description and body shaming her. And his brother, David, had to fire his older brother, Ted, because of what he did. He wouldn't apologize. He wouldn't take the notes down. So uh, we really focused. We actually talked to a psychiatrist uh, about this and we realized he has a lot of issues in the world. Um, Ted Kaczynski did at the time, but one of them was his frustration at not meeting the right woman and just not being able to communicate with them. In fact, he wrote, he, he, he's a virgin. He was in his fifties and, you know, he never had sexual relations with a, with a woman. And, uh, he was heterosexual by all indications, not a bad looking guy. Um, you know, when he cleaned the soot off him and shaved his beard in from, uh, you know, being about a foot long. And, um, but just something just didn't work with the guy. Certainly Bright certainly could have made something of himself in the real world. He started to. So I really think it all comes down to with him. I think he had some sort of a a a, a deeply rooted frustration with the fact that he could just never succeed in society. Brilliant in the world of mm-hmm. mathematics. He could have taught for the rest of his life, but he just couldn't succeed. He just couldn't get by. Uh, in any sort of a social setting. Um, I hate to use this term, but I, I used it back in the day. 
In effect, he was socially retarded, and um, he just didn't know how to deal with other people and other places, even within his own family. And that certainly includes women. And look at the one minor rejection he had from a woman right in his workplace and how he goes and handles that. And these these bizarre one ads he put in these uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, certainly a mainstream paper in the mid-70s, looking for a squaw to live with him in the deep woods. And then a few years later in Mother Earth News, trying to get a little more of an earthy, um, you know, uh, uh, audience there for his uh, his wants and his needs. And he actually met, reading his notes in his autobiography, he actually met a few women who agreed to at least meet him about these uh, mm-hmm. these one ads, but uh, they just didn't meet uh, they just didn't meet his criteria, and uh, and uh, it was time for him to move on. So, uh, but laced throughout his writings, uh, there's a lot of sexual frustration and repression in there. And uh, I really think that played some role, uh, a mother who may have been overbearing to some degree, putting a lot of pressure on. Remember, his father committed suicide and that whole dad at his eye thing, where does that all play in? So I think there are some, uh, I'm not going to go Oedipal complex type things like that, but there, there are certainly some issues with women in his life. He thought seriously in, um, in the, uh, when would this have been, the late, uh, late 60s, to go through a sex change oh, really? operation while he was at the University of Michigan. And he just walked into the doctor's office at the university and said, yeah, I think I want to be a woman. Oh, okay, this is late 60s, remember. This isn't the whole you know, trans movement we have now in the world. And they sit down and, and, and uh, you know, student Kaczynski is saying, I want to be a woman, when can we start? Well, it's two years of analysis. We give you some medications, you do some you know, medical transformation. No, can I get the operation like next mm-hmm. week? Right. <laughs> and the doctor told him, no, we can't do that. And he got all upset and he walked out of the doctor's office. And we know this because these are very clearly written in his personal notes. And he said, when he walked out the door that day at that doctor's office, the doctor who told him he couldn't become a woman that next week, that's when he decided to kill people. That's when I decided, I'll kind of quote him now, that's when I decided big business, big government, big medicine, these are all evil people. These psychologists don't know what they're talking about. I want to kill them. I don't have to become a woman. I'll stay who I am and I'll show them what I am. I'm going to start killing. That's not part of the show. It took them about 10 years to actually, uh, they don't go into that in the Mm. show. It's in my book. Uh, uh, and, uh, And that's definitely some of the factors that kicked in. And um, I think they briefly mentioned in the show that there was a talk of a sex change operation, but um, uh, or at least an attempt to do it. But it, it clearly frustrated him that uh, it just didn't happen overnight. And uh, that's just as brilliant as he was. He didn't realize this is a process that, you know, people have to go through very slowly to make sure for all parties sake that they're doing it right. So uh, for whatever reason, and who knows how serious he really was. That's when decided to start killing people. Well, I'll let the listeners um, read your book and, and, and many who have watched the series know sort of how the linguistics and how the manifesto led to you um, zeroing in on him. But I'm, I'm interested in how have linguistics factored in other high-profile cases that you've worked on because you've worked on some really high-profile cases after this one as well. Or have they figured in? I did. Oh, I did. And, um, and yes, forensic linguistics did fit in. And um, one thing I learned in the Bureau is if, uh, if you have success in a case and perhaps you've used some novel form or some 
non-traditional form, legal, of course, uh, of, of, of attaining that success of getting a, an arrest and a conviction, whether you like it or not, you become the expert. So all of a sudden, here I am, a brand new profiler, and I truly am trying to learn about the behavioral sciences and how people and criminals think and operate and, and, and you know, organize, disorganized offenders, all these things that, that people are watching Mindhunter. They know I went through that, some of that training, too, uh, also. But I kept getting cases assigned to me. Hey, Fitz, uh, yeah, you, you solved the Unabom case with this language stuff. Here's a case that came in with these three letters, and here's some stalker that's writing these letters to this woman, and, oh, yeah, here's some threats, anonymous coming in. And all of a sudden, it seems like half my cases had language uh, components mm-hmm. to them. And then I started getting more and more, and I'm getting successful at the same time, and I'm actually doing the same kind of comparisons. Well, all right, I had a medical doctor in um, upstate Pennsylvania who, uh, whose wife was murdered in her home by a sniper shot through the window. Here they were estranged, going through a divorce. He was became a suspect. All of a sudden, two letters show up uh, to his lawyer, anonymous, claiming somebody else did it. And they asked me to compare the writings of this doctor to these two anonymous letters. And really, I used the same skills I had used in the Unabom case to uh, this case. I testified in it. And other evidence, of course, was present. And he was convicted of murdering his wife. And there's no doubt he did it. And he's serving a life sentence in prison now. So, and of course, the John Bonet Ramsey case, I can't talk about that. There's a lawsuit, but there was certainly language involved in that three page right, note. That's a little girl who was murdered in her home in 97 in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and a few years later, uh, the 9 11 attacks, there's writings involved there, the diary. Of, uh, of Mohammed Atta, the, one of the pilots in one of the planes. After that, the anthrax case, there's writings. After that, the D.C. sniper case, there's writings. These are the big cases that people, many people around the world uh, are familiar with, but there are many other local ones of homicides and other serial offenses in which writings were involved. And all of a sudden, I started saying to myself, um, if I'm going to be taken serious in this field, I better go back to school. I already had a master's degree in organizational psychology, but I said, if I want to be taken serious in linguistics, I better uh, look into it and uh, further. So I did Georgetown University. I know where Roger Shai used to teach, the professor I met right, you right. Know, before Unibom. And, um, and I went there and signed up. And I, I was one of the few part-time students they had in the master's program. And it took me five years to get my second master's. Uh, but I did. And, um, and it all worked out uh, pretty well. And at that point, I never called myself a forensic linguist until I actually had that degree in hand. Uh, but I was testifying in course in cases and working all kinds of other cases over those years. And, uh, and I was very proud of the fact that I developed and designed the communicated threat assessment database in the FBI. And uh, that's my baby. It's still doing it. It's in its yeah. teen years now, although I'm uh, removed from it as I'm retired, but it's still, it's now a corpus, which is a collection of documents using linguistic language. And uh, I helped uh, build that thing to now it's uh, several million words strong, thousands of uh, threatening, criminally oriented and problematic communications. So anytime a language case comes into the FBI, it gets automatically searched to the CTAD, which I'm very proud to have created and designed back in 2002, 2003. So uh, that's my... uh, Probably what I'm most proud of, a lot of good cases I worked, and I helped put some bad guys away, even in retirement, and some women, too, who uh, chose to use language to, uh, to further their, their misdeeds, if not murders. Um, but I'm certainly very proud of the fact that the CTAD is still running well, and uh, 
my uh, fellow agents still use it to help solve their cases. Right. Has forensic linguistics become even more important or changed sort of in the age of the internet and Twitter and Facebook? I mean, writing's everywhere now, even even more accessible than writing a letter and mailing it with, through the U.S. mail. You're absolutely right. I used to teach, when I, I'd still teach forensic linguistics at a few different universities where I'm adjunct professor. I'm, I'm a guest lecturer around the world in this field. Sometimes I do a two-hour presentation. Sometimes it's a, it's a week long. Um, but um, in the early days, I used to say, uh, you know, uh, to actually send a threatening letter through the postal service there's about 15 different steps involved, and I won't go, but, you know, pull the paper out, pull the envelope out, write, stamp, right. address. Right, so many different you know, Leave things, the house, yeah. <laughs> go to the post office. It, it's 12, you know, 12, 15 different steps I used to count out. And, and anywhere along at least the first, you know, eight or so of those steps, the person can write the whole letter out, you know, three pay, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to rape you, whatever it may be. They salt field it up, put the stamp on it, they're ready to walk out the door, and they say, ah, you know what? Screw him, screw her. It's not worth it. They rip it up and throw it away. Well, nowadays, as you and your listeners know, you sit down with the computer, you type five lines, 140 characters, now I guess 280, and you put it out there and you hit a button. It's like three steps. Open computer, type, send, and you've just committed a felony conceivably. So yes, there is much more in the way out there to uh, language usage. It's, uh, it was for millennia, it was strictly spoken word. Then it became, you know, some written in some languages. And then, uh, and then it became electronic and to the point now that everybody who has a phone is sending messages back and forth with the use of their thumbs or whatever from presidents <laughs> on down and saying some very interesting things. And, uh, and, and yeah, sometimes a forensic linguist is needed, whether the person is known. We have a known author who sent it or if it's somehow anonymous or pseudonymous. Uh, I, I, I have a private business, James R. Fitzgerald Associates, and, and I still have uh, corporate clients and law enforcement people from around the world reaching out for me saying, we have these anonymous documents. Can you help us figure out who wrote them? And that's exactly what I do. And in many of the cases, we do uh, come up with a very viable suspect, and they handle that person accordingly in the workplace. Uh, or, or in the, or in the court system, if it's a criminal case. So, uh, forensic linguistics, uh, uh, it, it is slowly evolving. Uh, I teach at one of the few uh, master's programs in the U.S. Of, where you can get for uh, a degree in forensic linguistics. And you consult for television and documentaries and and your book series, and and you've been really sort of um, educating the public about what forensic. Um, linguistics really is with your work even then and and now. But um, um, sort of to wrap this up, what do you know? About, I know one of the details in the in the um, in the series is you never actually met Ted Kaczynski, but the the conversations on the series are sort of based on questions you had for a potential meeting you were going to have. But what do you know about Ted today? You're right. And uh, I argued with the writer and director when I first read the script and they had me sitting across a table and I kind of lost that argument. Uh, they had two A-list actors and they said they had to put them together. And uh, uh, and so that's what they did. Uh, yeah, I uh, I did have a FaceTime with Kaczynski and I wrote it. It, it covers it's over a few pages in my uh, near the end of my book at uh, Kaczynski's uh, sentencing in Sacramento in, um, I believe that was 97. And um, 
we had a very strange interaction once somebody called my name and he looked over at me. And I'll, I'll let your uh, uh, I'll let your listeners check mm-hmm. that out in the book. But uh, 2007 was the year I was going to retire, and I uh, I was already heading out to the Air Force Academy in in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So months in advance, I wrote to the prison, got the correctional staff on board. Kaczynski gave approval to talk to me, um, to meet with me. He knows Fitzgerald, my name, from all the court documents that got him arrested. And uh, it was all set up. I did my training at the Air Force Academy the next day in a rental car. I'm driving to the Florence, Colorado Supermax Penitentiary. And about halfway there, um, I got a phone call from the correctional staff saying, um, Mr. The interview wouldn't take place. And just real quick here. Uh, in Supermax in Colorado, these are the worst of the worst mm-hmm. prisoners in the federal system in the U.S. They are in solitary rooms by themselves, 23 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of their lives. And the message that the correctional officer gave me on the phone was directly from Ted Kaczynski, who said he would love to talk to me today and go through with this interview. However, something came up and he's busy. <laughs> All right. So you're in your prison cell 23 hours a day, but you're a little too busy. So, yes, I did have a long list of questions written out I was going to ask. And it wasn't a script, but I certainly had themes and topics I wanted to follow. And I did provide that to the writer. And in some of the scenes in which there's face-to-face interaction between uh, Kaczynski and Fitz, uh, they did borrow from those questions and take it from there. And the other things that we didn't discuss when, when he was throwing back things and forth, uh, back and forth about, um, uh, you know, the fruits of the forbidden tree and that the evidence from the cabin wouldn't be permitted, uh, that was actually heated discussions, or I should say those discussions represented heated discussions Kaczynski was having in real life with his mm. defense team because uh, he, he didn't understand how this whole concept worked and try to get my affidavit thrown out. And, the, and if it was, then all the evidence we found in the cabin wouldn't have worked. But uh, the defense did their best. We even think Kaczynski uh, wrote some of the documents to argue his defense uh, in that regard. But the judge finally said, no, these, uh, the, everything found in the cabin stays. Fitzgerald's affidavit uh, will hold up. And, uh, and uh, you know, what's next is defense. And that's when they decided to plead guilty. Well, Mr. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for taking your time and for the work you do. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Christina. You take care. Thank you so much to former FBI agent and criminal profiler James Fitz Fitzgerald. You can watch Manhunt Unabomber now on Netflix. And you can order Mr. Fitzgerald's memoir series, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, on Amazon or at other booksellers. Thank you so much for listening and hope that you will join us for our new and upcoming shows now in 2018. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Bory, and Produced by Rene Vikander and myself. I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. 
So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.